Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Trade war with China in one corner, the U.S. in the other, and the global economy caught in the middle. When an extremist in Toronto warns his group's opponents will be fitted for body bags, and that Islamist organization receives summer job grants from Ottawa, it's to be expected there'll be questions in Parliament. Legalizing recreational use of marijuana. A wise move, given the brain is not fully developed until a person is in his or her mid-twenties? I'm Roy Green, and this is the Roy Green Show podcast. Hit up Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe to the Roy Green Show podcast. The Roy you want, when you want it. Banker and investment specialist, John Thayer now. Mr. Thayer's been on this program before. John, thank you for coming back. Hey, Roy, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm great. So this is there a trade war underway now between the United States and China? Uh, uh, United States and China, have, have, have the first shots been fired? Well, look, I think that phase one of any negotiation, whether it's with your brother, your boss, another business, or another country for that matter, starts with everybody walking away from the table and saying no. Uh, phase two is somebody realizing the other side holds the cards, and phase three is that guy coming back and saying what it is it that you want. I think what the president has done with everybody is initiate phase one. All, I think all of these you know, tariffs, which are frankly quite small in nature relative to the global economy, um, is just going to force, and, and to which everyone has responded, no way you can upend the, the, the global order is just initiating phase one of this. Uh, you know, look, I think that the president's endgame undoubtedly is to solve the strategic situation with China. Uh, I think he would like to pursue neutral trade with some of our allies, particularly Western Europe and Mexico, for that matter. Uh, but we're really just in phase one here. So where does Canada fit into all of this? We trade with the United States. We're your largest trading partner. Uh, we trade with China. We, uh, we We trade with so many countries around the world. Do we become potentially collateral damage, and what? How do you see this developing? Uh, well, you, well, the U.S. is Canada's largest trading partner. That's right. Uh, I, I think that look, the, the president hasn't been shy about starting this conversation with virtually every one of our trading partners, allies, and and enemies. Um, you know, look, the the trade imbalance with Canada is quite small for a variety of reasons. I think Americans would view Canada as perhaps our uh, greatest strategic ally over the long term. I don't anticipate there to be any kind of meaningful trade war with Canada long term. I do think there are some things that the president would like to see solved. I think there are some asymmetric uh, tariffs in place, again, small in nature. Uh, and then I think ultimately the, the president will look for Canada's help in solving some of the issues that we have with China. And you know, and, and look on the NAFTA negotiation, uh, Mexico and Canada are very different things from the, America's perspective. Um, I think we will ultimately have 
bilateral uh, agreements with Canada and Mexico individually, and the, the Mexico one is materially more complicated for a whole variety of reasons. But I don't expect there to be any meaningful trade uh, conflict with Canada over the long term. And President Trump has very clearly spoken about preferring bilateral trade with Canada and a separate bilateral agreement with Mexico as opposed to the tri, uh, tri-party uh, um, deal with uh, the United States and, and Canada and uh, and Mexico. Um is yeah, the, yeah. The, the impact of NAFTA on America, uh, you know, vis-a-vis Canada hasn't been that significant. Uh, the manufacturing jobs that have left America to to Mexico, uh, and then compounding that with the the situation we have on the southern border uh, from an immigration and, and narcotics perspective, I think has made the Mexico portion of the NAFTA negotiation of much more strategic interest to the president than uh, what may or may not happen with Canada. John, uh, 25% tariff on cars made in Canada entering the United States. That's something Mr. Trump has talked about. And one of Canada's leading automotive consultants told us yesterday that unemployment numbers would be huge in the U.S. and in this country as a result of such a tariff. Cars would not be moving to the U.S. from Canada if the price escalates between six dollars and $10,000 per unit. Approximately 2 million Americans work in the auto business, half a million in the dealership chains alone. Is do you, do you see the automotive business or the automotive trade being um, potentially on on the line in this way? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, as I said, I think the the entire context of the conversation today mm-hmm. is the president telling all of our trading partners we need to r- right set the current trade deals we have. Virtually every one of those other trading partners has responded by, with in my mind, kind of empty statements like, "You can't upend the world order," you know, and it's in its in itself has no real meaning. Uh, so the president is saying, "Okay, if that's your position, here are the tariffs we're going to go down." And and eventually, I think the president believes that in any trade war, then there's no question a trade war is painful for both sides, almost by definition. Uh, the president believes that a trade war with virtually any of the countries we're talking about will likely be more painful for the other side than it is for the United States. We yeah. are, have a massive trade deficit with the world. Uh, we are the consumer. We, you know, we are essentially the customer to all, the, all of these countries. Uh, and I think he believes that a trade war will be more damaging to the other side, and therefore a trade war will never, never happen. This is essentially a game of chicken where he's trying to get these people to phase two where they say, okay, what is it that you want? And again, I think if you go down the list of countries, the, 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 request, the request may be different. But uh, with Canada and, and Western Europe, I think are probably the most benign examples. There's probably some okay. uh, neutralizing of, of tariffs to, to be done. Interesting. Uh, while, you was, while you were talking, I had written down playing chicken. John Taylor, thanks so much for the time. Good talking to you, as always. Thanks, Roy. The Roy Green Show podcast is the only podcast hosted by Roy Green. Which makes sense. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Conservative MP and House leader Candace Bergen facing off with Justin Trudeau. Have a listen to the exchange between Conservative Party House leader Candace Bergen, who's been a regular guest on this program, and the Prime Minister of Canada. Here's how it went. Last Saturday in downtown Toronto, in what can only be described as a rally intended to entice hatred towards Jews and others, Sheikh Shafiq Huda of the Islamic Humanitarian Service called for the eradication of Israelis and genocide. Some of his anti-Semitic hate speech aimed at the Jewish community included telling them, you will leave in body bags. Mr. Speaker, will the Prime Minister condemn these hate-filled anti-Semitic comments? Right Honourable Prime Minister. 
Mr. Speaker, we always condemn hate-filled anti-Semitic or anti-homophobic uh, uh, homopho uh, or anti-Islamophobe, anti-hate-filled uh, speech of all types across this country. Canada is a welcoming, diverse country of a broad range of views and perspectives, uh, but we do not allow hate speech. We do not allow the incitement of hatred. Uh, we are a country that is built on mutual respect, on openness and compassion, uh, and we reject the politics of division and hate wherever they come from. Honourable Opposition House Leader. Mr. Speaker, the Prime Minister's actions speak otherwise. And on one hand, he is giving these anti-Semitic religious extremists taxpayers' dollars to actively promote hatred using funds from the Canada Summer Job Program. On the other, he's denying funding to faith groups that want to help those in need. Why is the Prime Minister allowing certain religious organizations to be funded to promote hatred towards Jews, but saying no to churches that want to help the homeless? Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, this is not an issue of faith or beliefs. We can tell they're still Stephen Harper's Conservatives when they advocate for organizations like the Centre for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. We believe that public funds should never be used to actively fight against the rights of Canadians and we will ensure that no money from uh, Canada Summer Jobs Program uh, is refunded to organizations uh, that violate uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that use hate against other Canadians of any type. I don't know how you bring Stephen Harper into that argument, but he did. Let me speak with uh, Tom Quiggin now. Tom Quiggin is a former military intelligence officer, a former intelligence contractor for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and a court-appointed expert on jihadist terrorism in both the federal and criminal courts of Canada. He's the author of Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada, with a warning to America, and the foreword for the book is by Rahil Raza. And you can find uh, the book at Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle versions. And uh, Tom is also um, the principal behind the blog, The Quiggin Report. So, Tom, what do you, how do you assess what we just heard? Well, thanks for inviting me to the uh, Roy Green Show. Uh, first, just by way of note, the Islamic, Islamic Humanitarian Service we're talking about here is also a registered charity, according to CRA, in addition to getting summer job program money. Uh, so the taxpayer is paying for this outfit twice, once directly and once through subsidies. Um, the member of Parliament, Candice Bergen, raises a completely correct uh, position. Trudeau has said that the program won't fund groups that are anti-Semitic, uh, or advocate anti-gay violence, or advocate against abortion. Yet the al Quds Day program, which this gentleman was speaking at, was actually conceived of, organized by, and initially funded by Iran, which funds abortion, which forbids abortion, kills gays by hanging them in public, and it actually advocates for the destruction of Israel. So this is a sort of trifecta of violations of the nature and intent of the summer jobs program, at least according to the statements of the PM, Minister Hajdu, in the application form itself. Um, we don't have time to get into this right now, Roy, but there are literally dozens of Islamist groups in the summer job program whose core mandate opposes abortion and advocates for varying forms of violence or resistance against gays. So I think coming down the road, we're going to see a, a requirement or a demand for a audit of the entire project to see how many of these groups that actually violently oppose abortion and violently oppose gays are actually getting funded, contrary to the statements of the Prime Minister. Tom, do you think the Prime Minister is just not aware, or is he just choosing to not appear to be aware? No, the Prime Minister, uh, as, as we've discussed before, Roy, has a 10-year-long history 
in public life of supporting the Islamist groups at every turn. Uh, so it's not like this is just one group that kind of slid through. So if you get, you know, a few thousand applications and a bad one slides through, well, you know, government's less than perfect, and there you go. But in fact, there are dozens of these groups which openly support the Liberal Party, which openly oppose abortion and openly oppose gays. So it's not like it's a secret. It's not like a mistake. This is, as the uh, as the technical folks say, it's not a bug, Roy. It's a feature. He, he becomes so emotional when uh, whenever an issue like this uh, is raised. He was extremely emotional again with Candace Bergen and uh, and brought Stephen Harper into the argument. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, seen from the Prime Minister's point of view, he's got a problem here. He cannot argue his position on logic or facts or on policy, uh, because what his government is doing dozens of times uh, is completely contradictory to what his actual statements are. So I think he's left with simply that. Either you make an emotional response... Uh, or you just drag Stephen Harper into it, which, of course, seems to be his go-to position on everything from, uh, you know, Islamist problems to money problems to whatever. So I think it, it's kind of an indicator and warning to me as an intelligence analyst when you see someone respond emotively and start dragging irrelevant uh, facts forward. It's usually indicative of a very weak position. And in this case, I mean, the prime minister has a real problem. He suffers from political entryism in his party. He has a number of people in his party who are hardcore Islamists, but yet openly he says he's a feminist. So, I mean, that contradiction is unsolvable. It's unworkable. So his response is just that. It's emotive rather than factual. Tom, thank you so much for the time. Cheers, Roy. Visit Apple Podcasts or Google Play now and sign up for the Roy Green Show podcast. 100% free. 100% Roy. And so 2018 is going to be the year. The legalization of recreational marijuana use in Canada is just around the proverbial corner. Joining me is Julian Fantino, executive chairman of Ali uh, Alifi uh, Health, uh, medical cannabis company, and the former commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police, Toronto Chief of Police and London, Ontario Chief of Police. I didn't, uh, Julian. Thank you for joining us. I didn't get the name of the uh, the company. I didn't pronounce it correctly. What is it? It's Alifia, Roy. Alifia. Uh, yes, basically focused on medical cannabis uh, right now. Yeah, and that's the uh, that, that really is a is a major trend where people are trying medical cannabis for any number of ailments uh, with you know with individual levels of success. But there's a great interest in this. Well, it's been legal for a dozen or more years, and uh, more and more people are turning to it where conventional medicine does not seem to be able to help them out with such things as chronic pain, sleep deprivation, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. So uh, my first exposure to all of this was with our veterans and uh, uh, some of the help that they were seeking with alternate uh, medical intervention, if you will, and uh, turning to medically prescribed cannabis uh, really helped them a great deal. Yeah, and you, of course, were the Federal Minister of Veterans Affairs. So the difference between the medical cannabis and what's going to be available for personal consumption is quite significant. Uh, you're not, you don't get a high from medical cannabis. There'll be a certain amount of that uh, with, the, uh, with the, the recreational stuff. How much of a challenge is the different approaches, Julian, being taken on uh, the sale of marijuana by different provinces. Province A has this approach, Province B has that one, and Province C takes a completely different approach. Well, it's a bit confusing, actually. Uh, the federal government, uh, in its right and entitlement and authority, have uh, decreed a legalization, 
and and uh, the actual implementation of all of that was left to the provinces and the territories. So what you really have is you have uh, individual uh, approaches uh, that have been or are being put in place to deal with the legalization issue, but more to do with the actual distribution of, uh, of, uh, of marijuana. In the medical side, it's it's quite different, actually. The gatekeeper is always a medical doctor. Uh, he or she uh, do an assessment. They look at the individual as they do with every other ailment and uh, make the determination whether or not that person is a good subject to be helped uh, with medical cannabis. So, But the recreational thing right now is, is a bit confusing to a lot of people, no doubt. Uh, but, you know, as with every new piece of legislation, uh, things do shake out eventually. Would taking more time for the legislation, and quite a few people were recommending this, would taking more time for the legislation have been advisable, or was, was, did they take enough time? I, I think it's a good thing to do. Uh, these are very complex issues. Uh, the The... Complications uh, extend far and wide. Obviously, you've heard uh, uh, the issues uh, that are pertinent to law enforcement, for instance. Uh, the new piece of legislation, Bill, Bill uh, C-46, that uh, just passed uh, enacting new uh, authorities for the police and, of course, new, uh, new technologies as well. Uh, but, you know, eventually the courts will have to deal with so much of this as they did with uh, uh, in, uh, alcohol-impaired driving. So, uh, taking time, I think, in this circumstance with such a complex piece of legislation and so many uh, issues that impact, I think is a good thing. Driving under the influence, I'll talk about C-46. The, uh, the, I think where the Supreme Court's going to probably get involved very early, as well as quickly as Supreme Court's got involved. But that will be where police don't have to have any suspicion that someone's driving impaired in order to stop the motorist and to insist on a breathalyzer. Uh, test. That's going to be a. That's going to be something somebody will challenge very quickly. Oh, absolutely, Roy. I was around for all of the issues that uh, that became uh, part of the scene with respect to uh, alcohol impaired driving. The the alcohol testers, the authorities of the police. When you can do this? When you can do that? It's going to be the same kind of up and down the court system situation uh, long before this thing settles. So. Uh, going back to your earlier comment, which I think is valid, uh, taking time in these circumstances uh, to do things as best as you can up front, anticipating as one should, uh, that challenges that are going to happen uh, is a good thing, and hopefully uh, that can be done in, in, in a way that will prevent a lot of uh, anxiety and, and difficulties later. Is there something, Julian, in particular that we have learned from jurisdictions where marijuana has been legalized, which we can and perhaps should apply to Canada. Well, absolutely, and and, and that has been part of the situation as well. There's been the the marijuana the legalization uh, task force uh, put in place by the prime minister. Uh, they did a lot of work. In fact, my colleague uh, with Alifia, uh, Raf Sukar, former uh, deputy commissioner of the RCMP. Uh, was one of those members, and they traveled widely, and they did the research. They did the 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 kind of uh, in-depth uh, analysis of, of consequences, uh, uh, issues, and uh, and in that regard, uh, we hope that uh, some of those things will preempt 
difficulties here, but there will be difficulties, no doubt, as as we always know with new pieces of legislation. Mm-hmm. Well, people will be driving high, and there will have accidents, and people will die because somebody's driven uh, high. Uh, is the law sufficiently developed to address the situation as well as it does driving under the influence of alcohol? Not quite, uh, Roy. Uh, you know, that you raise a good point because, for instance, in regards to alcohol-impaired uh, driving, we have intoxilizers, we had roadside screening devices, the technology is there, it's been up and down the courts. Uh, there isn't such a technology in place uh, presently, and there's a lot of work being done in that area to hopefully come up with a screening device that will, in fact, uh, help deal with us. But, you know, not to be commenting about the science associated with all of this, but there's some inherent difficulties uh, and differences as well between uh, alcohol uh, in the body and and marijuana in the body sort of thing. Uh, So there's issues there that need to be dealt with. This will be a long time uh, being dealt with uh, on all of these different issues. And, And like I say, the technology is not quite there yet, so... Uh, there's a lot of challenges uh, facing us, and that's why I, I feel quite comfortable in the things that we're doing in the medical side. And I, I do wish that the government, when they're finished and done with the recreational piece, uh, that they will focus their time, energy, and resources to develop the rigor around medical cannabis so as so many more people can be helped uh, with the medicine. Well, to share with us, please, what is happening as far as the development of medical cannabis is concerned? What are some of the things that, 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 you're, that you're planning on being able to address? Uh, what are some of the specific successes that point to medical cannabis as a, as, as a viable answer when conventional medicine perhaps doesn't provide that solution? Well, one of the things that we're doing with uh, Alicia and the, the patients that we have uh, in the system now, uh, we're doing studies that uh, will help people get off of opiates, uh, Percocet, Oxycontin, uh, fentanyl, all those kinds of issues, and, and it's remarkable really what we're seeing so far. But at some point in time, I believe that uh, as with every other drug that's developed and tested, eventually the the uh, health uh, ministry have to designate and authorize the, the the substance or the medicine with a drug identification number. That's not quite the case yet with uh, medical cannabis, uh, but there's uh, there's that issue, and there's some people that are uh, finding tremendous amount of help uh, with uh, their ailments, uh, right down to children who uh, are suffering from epilepsy, people post-cancer treatment uh, scenarios, uh, post-traumatic uh, stress uh, and anxiety issues, Certainly a lot with pain management, and, and like I mentioned to you, Roy, uh, I found my, my conversion was basically during my time with Veterans Affairs. I mean, we didn't do everything well there, obviously, but uh, we did quite a number of things that uh, that are helping veterans, and, and we're looking at how first responders can be helped, too, uh, the, the police, fire, and EMS uh, scenario. So getting people of opiates, I think, is a huge, huge advantage but also being more effective in, in, in treating some of these ailments that uh, people are suffering from. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Executive Chairman of Alifia, that's A-L-E-A-F-I-A, uh, Medical Cannabis and Health Company. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. Thank you, Julian. 
Okay, Roy, all the best. Want to hear more Roy Green? We've got you covered with the Roy Green Show podcast. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Here's former Alberta Crown attorney and currently adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University, Scott Newark. We've been talking for 25 yeah. At least yeah. 25 years. I was years. still a prosecutor when uh, breaking the rules. Uh, I spoke to you uh, after having uh, testified for a parliamentary committee. I remember that. Yeah. yeah I, re- I remember the first time we spoke. Yeah. And, and I learned something that day, and I, m- I mean this quite sincerely. I've been learning from you about the justice system ever since. And what I know about Canada's justice system is largely due to the fact that I've been going to Scott, Scott New York U. <laughs> Well, the the other side of it, frankly, is the importance, that's what I learned along the way as well, too, was the importance of having a platform by which the truth about the justice system's performance and non-performance could actually be given to Canadians. And that's what was so incredibly important about the work that you've done over the years in helping expose these, uh, these issues and also you know, uh, be a platform for asking the right questions and trying to get the right answers and come up with solutions. Well, between the two of us, we've done a lot. Uh, this mutual admiration society has got to end. Uh, but we, what we did was, well, you did. I didn't because I'm s- such a nice guy. But you actually had a, 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 a government minister in tears. Yeah. You remember uh, that? It's called cross-examination. Yeah. It's, well, it's, uh, it worked. Yeah. And, and you had that Russian spy, too, right? Remember that? Oh, I remember that one, yeah. That was, that was one of those fun moments. <laughs> so there's a few things that we have to talk about that have been going on over the last days, and, days and weeks. And let's, yeah. if we can start with, uh, with the one uh, from Okotoks, Alberta, with uh, the young rancher, Edward uh, yeah. Maurice, who was, uh, had somebody break into his vehicle on his farm, he fired some shots. Somebody was slightly injured. He was charged criminally. And now the Crown has withdrawn the charge, which I think is going to be a very welcome decision oh, time, yeah. by, by most, most thinking Canadians. So what happened here? You're the former Alberta prosecutor. What happened? Well, the, uh, your description of the events is, uh, is true. He was uh, on his uh, property. He had an uh, infant child with him became aware of the fact that there were people, there was actually two people who were on his property. They were breaking into his vehicle. Uh, he looked at them. He yelled at them. They basically just, you know, looked back at him and just gave him the finger kind of thing. And so he, uh, they were glaring at him. That He wasn't sure if they were coming towards him. He had uh, taken his uh, gun, which he lawfully owned. And what actually happened that was significant is he fired a, what he described as a warning shot which did scare these guys, and they took off. Uh, and one of them, when they were ultimately caught, and, and he called the police, the RCMP, who ultimately showed up, and he told them what had happened. Uh, one of them got wounded in the arm. And so the police charged him with you know, aggravated assault and unsafe use of a uh, weapon and everything else. They finally caught the two uh, uh, guys who were uh, doing the, uh, trying to do the, uh, the theft. The victims. charged them as well, too. But it caused, as you can imagine, a huge, huge um, outroar uh, locally about uh, why it was that this property owner uh, had been arrested. In fact, he was uh, detained for, uh, I think it was for actually a couple of days before uh, receiving uh, bail. And there was tremendous local support for him and uh, showing up in court all the time, took multiple court appearances, and it turns out 
what it was for was because the uh, the Crown had directed a f- uh, forensics uh, firearms analysis, which confirmed, in fact, that the shot that was fired wasn't at the individuals, but it was, as he had said, just as a warning shot, but it hit something, and a bullet ricocheted and hit the guy in the arm. And so based on that, the Crown withdrew the charges because they didn't feel that they had the necessary intent to be able to lay the charges. But it very definitely raises the uh, the issues that are becoming quite prominent in uh, Western Canada, certainly in Alberta as well, too, about um, lawful property owners having the right to defend themselves, the inability of the RCMP to respond appropriately. I mean, they're, sometimes they never respond. It has generated huge uh, public concerns about it and a determination, I can tell you, the uh, Jason Kenney's uh, United Conservative Party is actually just uh, wrapping up consultations about changes that need to be made to deal with this situation. It's a it's a, a really significant concern and issue. If you are at home with your family or you're at home by yourself and you are under immediate and very serious threat or find yourself believing that given the circumstances that you're facing that you, your life could be in danger, well, that's the issue. Right. I mean, that is the issue. But you ha- you're you yeah. the one who has to have the right to make the decision. If the police can't get there in time to help yeah. you, what are you supposed to do? Just stand and yell help? Well, see, and that's the, the point is uh, in our criminal code, Section 34 and Section 35 deal with a right of uh, defense of uh, person and defense of property. And the language is all, of course, you know, uh, uh, pretty vague. It's it's done in terms of reasonable, what is reasonable uh, and so it largely does come down to a case-by-case analysis. I've actually made some suggestions about some amendments to the sections that could be made to specifically require courts to take into consideration the kind of factors you just described. But this is a case that got a, a lot of attention, obviously, after the, uh, the case in uh, Saskatchewan, and I think it's a good thing to see that the Crown finally looked at this and said, you know what, this guy shouldn't be charged. Proceeding it to uh, prosecute this guy is not in the public interest. Yeah, I was going to do a segment on it today, but I knew I was going to be talking to you, so I saved it for that. Now, here's another story. We have uh, an individual living in Toronto who has claimed in his correspondence with New York Times bloggers that he's an ISIS killer, that he has killed uh, for and, uh, and, and because of ISIS. And uh, he then reneged on that, um, and then he's once again been uh, communicating with bloggers, the New York Times, saying that, yeah, he did kill people and he didn't tell the RCMP or didn't tell police in Canada because it's none of their business. Uh, leaving Canada to go to another country to join a terrorist group is a criminal offense, provided you found guilty, right? So why is this individual walking around Toronto, or we understand, walking in Toronto, unencumbered by any uh, visitation from police, unencumbered by any criminal charges? If you defend your own life in your own home, you can find yourself with enough charges that you'll go to jail longer than the individual who broke into your home and threatened you. But this guy, who says he's killed on behalf of ISIS, he's walking around happy and free. This latest development on this guy, Abu Husafi al-Kanadi, um, is he reneged on his previous reneging of his reneged statement to the new, originally to the New York Times. So, you know, um, that's the latest twist on this thing, and you, you don't ever assume that what somebody like this is saying is, is, uh, is true. Relevant, perhaps, without question, but not necessarily true. And I think the issue, we've discussed this one before, uh, 
the the cops have to deal with this based on the evidence they have available and i i did some uh, looking into the circumstances i don't think it's even actually 100% clear uh, that he actually left Canada to join ISIS, uh, that he may have, in fact, had uh, gone to Pakistan and it was in a madrasa there, and he went to uh, Syria from Pakistan. And also, just because they've got statements from what he supposedly said, and we haven't seen the details of that, um, that's of itself not necessarily going to be sufficient to get a conviction. Uh, you know, they don't know what it is he specifically did. I, to my understanding, I don't know that they have, like, third-party evidence that confirms what he was doing, all those kinds of evidentiary issues. And so that's the real explanation that's been given. And I must admit, I thought Minister Goodale, when he was questioned about this in the House of Commons, I thought he actually uh, responded quite uh, correctly when he said that, because if he was being grilled about, you know, why hasn't this guy been charged or put on a peace bond or something like that, and I think he, he was quite correct when he said, um, you know, uh, look, these are decisions to be made by frontline operational people, not politicians. You know, I'll... I'll it's legitimate I'll, I'll, to I'll, ask the question why they're yeah, not doing it, yeah. but no, that, no, no. Is, that is the case. I will accept what you're saying, but I'll, I'd, I'll throw in this rider, that we have a prime minister who has said that he uh, believes that returning ISIS members could provide a significantly positive contribution to Canada, so it doesn't seem to me like Mr. Trudeau has any, and his government have any interest in intercepting or in any way, which way, making life difficult for returning ISIS members. Yeah, and I think to that point, um, I, some of the comments that have made been made by senior RCMP officers in relation to dealing with returning jihadis, frankly, they're a greater concern to me because they seem to have a politically correct tone to them. Yeah, you know, small p political, if you will. Yeah. Uh, personally, I think it's one of the suggestions I made on the uh, C-51 counterterrorism bill that to make these, because this is a new reality, Roy, dealing with these returning jihadis is a new circumstance we're going to have to deal with. Personally, I think we should tweak the wording in the terrorism peace bonds so as to uh, allow a court where the judge um, concludes that the individual was overseas you know, fighting with a terrorist uh, entity, a designated terrorist entity, or was engaged in terrorist activity, that that should create the presumption that is required in that section for the peace bond. That's mm -hmm. not there right now, and that's probably what's being viewed, because right now the, the, the evidentiary requirement is that they may commit a terrorism offense. And I, I don't know the specifics of it, but I will bet you that is probably the view that they don't have sufficient evidence for that. Okay, we're going to have to take a break, but you mentioned political correctness and, and dealing with these individuals. I spoke uh, not so long ago with uh, Lieutenant Commander, Lieutenant Commander Steve Day, Lieutenant Commander yeah. Steve Day, the uh, former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, our counterterrorism unit, Special Forces counterterrorism unit. And they, they, they took out ISIS members and... Uh, uh, Lieutenant Commander Colonel uh, Steve Day was very specific about, you know, we had missions to uh, to conclude, and we did what we had to do. He did, he set aside political correctness when he was when he was talking about these returning ISIS members. What he called them cockroaches. Yes. So, the issue here of uh, of um, Joshua Boyle. So here's this guy, yeah. who has some sort of relationship with Justin Trudeau, or at least he said he has. They've had things in common in the past. He visited the prime minister in the PMO uh, with his family, had his photo taken, and then he's charged with 19, I think it's 19 fairly significant criminal charges. Yes. 
Um, and then there's also the connection with the Carter family, as Joshua yep. Boyle was married to Omar Carter's sister, Zainab. So this is a kind of a tangled, dirty little web. Um, and now Boyle has a court date set. And I sent you an email, and I was kind of cynical in my assessment of the situation. Don't need to go into that, but um, what, uh, what, what's going on here? Well, the, um, he was arrested. The, the meeting obviously caused some controversy, and uh, Joshua Boyle made some tweets that you know, uh, suggested that he had had a previous, quote, relationship with uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, and then it, literally a matter of weeks after that, he gets arrested with all of these charges, uh, there's extensive publication bans. Uh, his lawyers, uh, he's very well lawyered up. His uh, family uh, obviously understands his dad's a retired federal court judge. Uh, he uh, gets remanded. He's in custody. He gets remanded for uh, repeated psych assessments uh, for almost, I think, about three or four months. Uh, then comes back, is released on very strict bail conditions, and now has the, uh, the trial date uh, set for the spring. Uh, this has the feel for me um, that this is a circumstance that will ultimately be resolved by a plea bargain, and that um, I, I've seen this happen before, where in effect the uh, the conditions of bail become the conditions of the sentence. Uh, you never know. I mean, you never know in something like this. You never know if the uh, if the victim, uh, how cooperative the victim is going to be in any of this. Uh, those are all things that are intangibles, but this has the feeling for me that this feels like something that's going to be resolved ultimately by a plea bargain where the conditions of his release, and they'll be able to say, well, he spent you know four months in pretrial custody, uh, the conditions of his release will be pretty much what he's on right now. Okay. We have three minutes left. Let's talk about two issues. One is the smuggling of guns into Canada yeah. from the United States. The other is the return of prison farms at correctional institutions. Well, very quickly on the prison farms, they were canceled uh, by Vic Taves when he was the minister uh, on, on very foolish grounds. Um, the, uh, the idea was that, oh, well, you know, people aren't going out and becoming farmers, as opposed to they had a lower, people who participated in the program had a lower recidivism rate. That's the measure of success for corrections. And uh, fortunately, the, uh, there was a, a, a consultation done. This Restoring this program was supported by people from all across the political spectrum, uh, former Senator Bob Brunson was a big fan of it as well, too. And this is something that was announced uh, recently that th- this program will now be reinstated, which is a very good thing. Yeah, when I was on the Corcan Advisory Board, and it was uh, Mr. Taves who appointed me to that, uh, I saw a couple of the prison farms in operation, and it looked like looked like the kind of place that would just bring the, the pressure down. Yeah. yeah. Just bring, well, it also, bring I it think, down. Gave, gave people that sense of they had responsibility for yeah. you know, yeah. other yeah. living entities. Yeah. That was a positive uh, rehabilitation. You know, they found they found in I don't know if they do it in Canada, but they found in the United States where they allow prisoners to have cats in a prison yeah. uh, that it that it really makes brings people's stress levels down. Yeah, because they're yeah. caring for something else that's alive. You know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do what works. Yeah. What about uh, what about guns being? Smuggled into well, Canada. this is uh, really uh, important. The the most, I mean, uh, I think there was another three fatal shootings in Toronto last night. People have been warning about this. Two big issues here. One is these particular guns, sixty plus, were actually smuggled across the border. They originated in Florida. Uh, they got smuggled across the border. I'm guessing between ports of entry down at uh, Cornwall. And um, gee, by remarkable coincidence, the police happened to be aware of it. Uh, there will be some intelligence background on this. 
uh, and it was, uh, you know, uh, for a uh, gang uh, that was operating in uh, Toronto. And it's an example of the reality of this. No matter how much some people may not want to admit it, cross-border smuggling of uh, guns is real, and we need to uh, take steps with that, as well as in uh, domestically owned firearms, what they call them uh, straw firearms, where people who are lawfully entitled to get them are, you know, buying like 20, 30 guns and then selling them to uh, uh, gang members. Okay, that's why we need a, a gun registry, in my opinion. And yes, I admit that I do support the gun registry. Uh, but that and the reality that police are no longer, are very much discouraged from doing street checks, guess what? There's been a huge increase in violence. And the people who suffer the most from this are those people in those same communities uh, that the police were trying to target, not because of uh, pigmentation, skin pigmentation or color, but because that's where crime was happening. And the people suffering the most from that are the people living in those communities. You and I part company on the issue of the gun registry, as you know. Uh, not surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and they have to leave alone gun owners who legally jump who jump through all the hoops and legally buy themselves a, a, a shotgun or a rifle yeah, but I want to know why a and a rifle leave them alone downtown Toronto buys 30 guns what for I said two yeah well this guy the one the one case in particular the guy bought 30 guns yeah well, we have, have a right a to know that okay are you done yes well actually I I no, gotta to go talk about another case thanks hope's good talking to you thank you Scotty <laughs> Bye-bye. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show podcast is available wherever you find podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like what you hear, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a review and tell a friend.